Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. We're back. Yeah, people like that, they're saying, well, we haven't been anywhere. But uh, we weren't here last week, although we did run... I say we, we I, I ran the, the interview I did. I, I like people to think I've got a huge team behind this, but frankly there isn't. Anyway, I ran the interview uh, with Rob Milkins that we did, that I did earlier in the year. And, uh, of course, he was the winner of the Welsh Show. But it's been some months. We reached the end of February. Three players really have dominated the month. Ali Carter... Robert Milkins and Sean Murphy. Ali Carter won the German Masters. He needed Sean Murphy to beat Robert Milkins so that he, Ali, won the Bet Victor bonus. That didn't happen. The 150,000 went to Milkins because he beat Murphy in the final of the Welsh. And then just last night, the Players' Championship was won by Sean Murphy, who beat Ali Carter. So February for those three is a very memorable month, and we'll be discussing all of that and much more. And because we weren't here last week, the emails have built up and we've been deluged. And people say that on other podcasts, it means I've had five emails. We have been genuinely deluged to the extent that I'm going to have to split this podcast into two. So there'll be one episode now, the one you're listening to, and then we'll be back on Thursday with the second half. So if your email is not read out in the first half, it will be read out in the second. Unless, of course, it's got fallen down the back of the sofa. But I'm going to try and get through them all. And uh, we'll crack on, I think. But firstly, d- d- just to say, uh, obviously, to Robert Milkins, uh, that was a fantastic uh, performance and achievement to win not only the Welsh, but also the bonus. And for Sean Murphy to bounce back the way he did, um, immediately sort of putting disappointment to one side, winning the Players' Championship with, a, well, the performance of the season, I think, in terms of quality, 11 centuries. <laughs> 11 centuries in, th- in four matches. He won 28 frames to win the Players' Championship. The record for centuries at the Crucible is 16, but to win that tournament you have to win 71 frames. So this is a much shorter format, 11 centuries, and he also had quite a few 80s and 70s as well. Just phenomenal, really. Um, we'll get, in, get into all of this, but you know we're going to start with the big issues. You know, there's a lot happening in the snooker world, but the big issue, of course, is how does the Championship League work? <laughs> because the Championship League is back on this week. In fact, it includes this week the winners' group Wednesday, Thursday, Group Seven on first. I had two emails about this. Jamie, first of all, says, I absolutely love the podcast and enjoying your commentary during the Welsh thus far. This was sent during the Welsh Open. I don't like to say he says thus far, suggesting he might not enjoy it towards the end. Anyway, he says, I have a question regarding the format of the Championship League. How on earth does it work? I noted that Matt Selt had been involved in all six groups so far and had earned more than almost £17,000 in the process. How is this fair when someone who comes in Group 7 may only get one crack at it? Is it drawn out and each player... Praise get drawn in group one. And just like that, you're discussing it as I'm listening and typing. However, if you could go into any further information, I'd be grateful. Richard Scott also writes, can you explain 
how the Championship League works. I thought it was seven groups of seven players leading to a group of seven winners. But looking at the results online, I see the same player appears in more than one group. It may be a silly question. It's not silly at all, Richard, although what I would say is this event has not changed, the invitation event, the format has not changed since it first was launched in 2008. So there's no... It's 15 years, but anyway... Um, there's 25 players in the invitation version of the Championship League. There's 25 players. They're chosen off the world rankings. So Matchroom, who run the event, for example, will invite, first of all, the world number one. And if the world number one, in this case Ronnie O'Sullivan, wants to play in the event, they will ask him which group he wants to come in. Now, in this, Ronnie's actually pulled out, but he actually said group seven. So he didn't want to come in group one. He wanted to play in one group. They then ring the world number two. Say it was Mark Selby at the time. Mark, do you want to play in the Championship League? If so, which group do you, do you want to come in? And so on and so on. So it's done off the world rankings. Some players like to come in right at the start. Some players like to time it so they're in it the week before the Masters. Some players like to come at the end precisely so they don't get stuck in group after group. Um, the way it works is there's uh, seven players who all play each other. The top four go into playoffs. The winner of that playoff goes into the winner's group. Okay, the three losers in the playoffs, so the losing finalist and the losing semi-finalists, they come back for the next group along with the player who finishes fifth with three new players and the players who finish sixth and seventh are relegated. That's always been the format. Um, and so Matt Selk came in in group one and has not won a group, but he's not been relegated either. So he, as we speak now, is in group seven. That's how it works. Um, some people I know find it a strange format, but that's how it works. That's what it is. And, uh, yeah, hopefully that answers your question. Dave Tyndall, and we'll get to the, uh, again, the uh, the issues uh, from the tournament shortly, but Dave Tyndall, he has a sort of VIP pass to the top of the list, having been on the podcast. He says, it's blithely trotted out that Peter Ebden is a great man for Jack Lazowski to have in his corner. But with Jack still not able to win, will there come a point where opinion turns? Peter loves a conspiracy theory, so I have a new one. Brace yourselves. Peter Ebden is having an adverse effect on Jack's career. My belief is that Jack is falling short because on key shots he's wondering if the moon landings were faked or whether he's been monitored by aliens flying balloons over Clandidno. How can we expect that to change while Peter is warning Jack not to eat at McDonald's because they put secret cameras in triple cheeseburgers? Of course, I'm being facetious, but it might just be a simple case of Peter not actually being the ideal man. That's not a slight on Peter, to be honest. Just maybe Jack would find better chemistry with someone else. Perhaps an arm round the shoulder type. What do you think? Also, who do you think shot JFK? Well, you know, the big issues are being discussed. It, it's kind of, it's hard to prove one way or the other, actually, the extent to which Ebden has helped Lazowski, because Lazowski reached six world, world ranking finals when he had nothing to do with Peter Ebden. Since linking up with him, he hasn't reached any. That doesn't mean he's not doing a good job. I think he's spoken about the sort of confidence that Ebden's given him and the sort of steel in his game. But really, you know, until he wins a tournament, I suppose the jury's out, really. Um, as for who shot JFK, <laughs> I mean, you know, as far as I know, Earl Warren doesn't listen to the podcast. But, uh, yeah, well, Lee Harvey Oswald shot him. But, of course, the, 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 the question is, did, did anyone help him? And, you know, who put him up to it, I suppose? Um, I don't think this podcast is going to solve the JFK assassination, to be honest. Uh, let's move on. James Wan. There's a funny thing about Sean Murphy. In the media, he appears to be a well-respected champion and ambassador of the sport. Among snooker fans, he appears to be a highly divisive figure. Common complaints are that he's smug, smarmy and fake. Equally, he seems to have an army of supporters who believes that he's done a lot for the game. 
I have to say I'm not a Sean Murphy fan. I feel he tries too hard to be the perfect classy sports personality and I cringe whenever he opens his mouth to say the perfect classy thing. Are you aware of the online debate surrounding Sean Murphy? And since you know the guy, can you confirm whether his television persona is completely manufactured? By comparison, I find you come across like an authentic person. <laughs> well, James, uh, the online debate surrounding Sean Murphy. Listen, there are people online who w w would kill someone for saying tomato ketchup's better than salad cream. I mean, the idea that debate online should be taken seriously about anything is frankly a bit of a joke. And here's the thing, OK? Our view of, let's say, celebrities, let's say anyone, really, is actually informed by our view of ourselves. It's informed by our prejudices. It's informed by our frustrations. I'll say this, OK? I've known Sean Murphy for a long time. He is exactly as he comes across. He's a huge snooker fan, first and foremost. He loves being part of tournaments, uh, not just as a player, that's you've just been there, just being at a tournament. He loves working for the telly. He loves being in snooker. Um, he's always positive about snooker. Now, you can... We all have our own, as I say, prejudices. We all have our own views on how people present themselves. If you don't like his style in interviews, that's perfectly fine. But here's the thing, OK? And I've told this story before, but at the World Grand Prix in Cheltenham, World Snooker... Uh, arranged with two players to go to a local school it was all set up on the morning of the visit the two players cried off one was in bed it turned out just wouldn't get out of bed they rang Sean and Sean went along and did it and if he hadn't done it that would have been a huge embarrassment to the sport so is that authentic enough for you? you know he stepped in he didn't have to he stepped in he did it and he did it really well um, and last week on ITV after he beat Mark Selby, he came in the studio and he was asked by Jill Douglas, the, the ITV presenter, whether he was missing shots because of a lapse of concentration. He went on a rant, which I think everyone has seen, and I thought it was weirdly aggressive. I'm sure it wasn't meant to be, but that's how it came across. Um, and he went away and watched it and he came to the same conclusion and he apologised. So again, you know... That's that's authentic to actually look at yourself and say, actually, I didn't present myself very well there. But I'd rather someone went in and actually said something and engaged than than didn't. And uh, I just think Sean's a fantastic player, and you know, a, a good blo a good snooker bloke. You know, he's a sort of you know, if Sean wasn't playing, he'd be watching. And there's a lot to be said for that. There's certain players I've noticed if there's a big final on, we'll suddenly start tweeting about other sports just to let everyone know they're not bothered about the snooker, even though they are watching it anyway. Um, but uh, Sean doesn't do that, and uh, as I say, the online debate surrounding him is completely meaningless. People never met him, so <laughs> what, does it, what does it really mean, you know? Uh, anyway, Craig says, I hope you're well. I write this while sitting in my shed at work, hiding out of the way watching the afternoon session of the Welsh Open final on a dodgy stream on my iPad hooked up to the hotspot on my phone commitment day I'll be home in an hour or two to continue watching via more conventional means I wrote to you before Christmas to tell you of my experience at the English Open having fallen in love with the game in the past few months something which has only increased since this has led to myself and my family booking tickets for a day session at next year's Masters and looking to make a return to Brentwood early this year when the English Open returns we can't wait I also, this week, purchased a yearly subscription to Snooker Scene magazine and purchased the past couple of months' editions on top. I've only had a chance to have a quick flick through, but I like what I've seen so far. I look forward to getting into them over the 
next few months while I also work my way through your back catalogue of podcasts. Back to the Welsh Open, just a small point I would like to raise. Is it just me, or has there not been as much applause from the audience at this tournament as others? I've noticed some cracking pots and safety shots being made, followed by deadly silence. I could be wrong, but I'm quite sure that the first applause from the audience during Murphy's incredible 147 was only heard when he passed the century mark in the break. I also heard one or two commentators in other matches noting that no applause was made, but a good shot had been made. Like I say, just a small point, but I wonder if anyone else had picked up on it while watching. I'll stop typing now and concentrate on my iPad, with Murphy close to taking a 3-1 lead. I hope I haven't jinxed that. <laughs> uh, spoiler alert, by the way, Craig. Uh, he says, I have had a couple of quid on Murphy since before the tournament, so hoping he does the business. There could be a takeaway on the cards for, for myself and the missus later if he does. Keep up your, the good work, David. Thank you for all your contributions to the snooker scene. P.S. I may have jinxed it. Murphy's just missed a red and left it over the hole. Me and my mouth. Craig then emailed back shortly afterwards. He said, a quick follow-up to my previous message. Unfortunately for myself and the missus, there was no takeaway on the menu last night. Just something rather bland from the freezer instead. Never mind, I at least got a couple of quid back, as I had Murphy each way. I couldn't have been happier, however, to see Milkins win. What a great guy he seems. And how much it meant to him, coupled with how well he played throughout the week. He thoroughly deserved the victory. Good luck to him. Looking at the odds for the Players' Championship, starting later on today. Maybe an indoor will be on the cards next Sunday if I choose wisely. Well, don't keep us in suspense, Craig. Did you actually back Murphy for that? Because, of course, uh, he did win it. Uh, let us know next week. Now then, Alpha Bonzi always writes in. Uh, he says, a bumper podcast, maybe, deserve, well, it is bumper, Alpha, it's, Alpha, it's two episodes. He says, maybe deserves a bumper email to start. Before the questions, a comment. I was disappointed at the behaviour of some fans in North Wales. By the way, I should answer that. Thing, but sorry, Alpha, I'll, I'll just on the applause thing. I have to say, I didn't really notice it, but, uh, you know, it's up to individuals, isn't it? Some audiences, you know, Germany, for example, in Berlin, they, they, they seem to really love everything. Others are a little more kind of picky, I suppose. I think if you paid your money, it's up to you, really. I, it didn't, didn't really occur to me that much while I was watching it. Anyway, Alpha says, uh, yes, I was disappointed at the behaviour of some fans in North Wales. How many times do they need to be told to switch their phones off before the message sinks in? Thankfully, the drunken moron who shouted nonsense at Neil Robertson at last year's players' final, seemingly fallen down a well. And the fans at Wolves were great. The phone thing, you know, it's, it's probably never going to be resolved, is it? It's always, uh, it's every venue we go to, it's always an issue. So uh, that's just one of those things. He says, on to the questions which we're all waiting for with bated breath, aren't we? <laughs> how, how, did, how did Robert Milkins keep his emotions in check at the end of that Welsh final, given what he achieved? Even Rachel Casey was in floods of tears during that post-final interview. Uh, well, we'll answer these one by one. I don't know. I mean, he was emotional. We got a lot of emails about Milkins. We'll come on to those shortly. Number two, how high does winning the players for a second time, his, his 2011 PTC final win is in the same lineage, ranking Sean Murphy's list of achievements, giving his a triple crown, there's that phrase again, winner, and his awesome performances this week. Uh, he says, murking opponents left and right. Murking, is that a word? Anyway, uh, how high does it rank? Well, it's not obviously not going to be above the World Championship and all that, but uh, it, obviously because it's been three years, because he's had some low times and because... You know, he's been close as well, you know, obviously the Welsh final last week. I would say it ranks very highly, you know, it's got to. Um, it gets him to 10 ranking titles, which was a, a little ambition of his. So I'm sure, you know, it's something that he is very proud of. Um, but it's hard to compare it with, you know, the, the, the sort of the really established titles, I suppose. But the performance has got to be one of his best ever, you know, maybe his best ever actually after the, 
the 2005 World Championship. Alpha's final question, is there a semblance of a calendar for next season? Is it true the Shanghai Masters and a China Grand Prix are in the plans? Thanks for the podcast and being a man on the inside as always. Well, I don't know how inside I am on this. I haven't seen a calendar for next season. There are some dates floating around. There's some tickets gone on sale um, for the home nations, the UK, the Masters, the world. I think I think the shootout dates have been announced and the European Masters. So there's, there's dates that are sort of here and there. Shanghai was announced in China. Um, but whether it will take place, we don't know. <laughs> there was talk of a new Chinese ranking event, but again, no firm dates. So hopefully, you know, in, in the next couple of months, we'll get <laughs> we'll get some dates. But we just, I've seen literally seen nothing so far that's actually official. I can't help you with that. Callum Law, looking back over the Players Championship in the Welsh Open, I felt Sean Murphy was the best player over the entire fortnight. So I was pleased to see him win the Players Championship after faltering in the final of the Welsh. It was the devastating form. We all know Sean is capable of producing where he runs over the top of opponents. Plenty to be excited about for him if he can sustain this form for the rest of the season. I also enjoyed watching Joe O'Connor. And while this is a quite an easy or lazy comparison to make because he's also from Leicester, he looks like he's got a touch of the Mark Selby about him with his tactical game, competitive nature and ability to make pressure clearances. We hear plenty about the lack of young players breaking through, but to me O'Connor looks to have all the attributes to be a top player and serial winner. Just to, I'll just jump in there, Callum. I, I was very impressed with Joe O'Connor. Um, you know, obviously he'd been in a final, and that's the main way he, he qualified. He, he got to the Welsh quarters as well this season. But to go into that environment, just 16 players. You know, he started on the first night against Mark Allen. He wasn't, you know, sort of out on table two, out of the way. He beat the player of the season. You know, he, he beat Brussel. He, he, he was very, very impressive. And... Uh, yeah, he's clearly got something about him and maybe it is the Mark Selby influence, but, you know, I'd be surprised if we didn't see a lot more of Joe Connor. Callum continues, looking back at the Welsh Open, what a life-changing win for Robert Milkins. I've heard him speak before about the difficulties he's had during his career and clearly the prize money for winning the tournament as well as the Bet Victor Series and the Champion of Champions place and likely Tour Championship place will make a big difference to him and his family. I also think winning the Gibraltar Open last year Gabe Milkins added belief during the final against Murphy. Without being unkind, he's not a player who's always been renowned for keeping his composure in his bottle. But after a bad start, I thought he competed really well and held himself together. The 11th frame, which he won on a respotted black, was probably a big moment. Had he lost that, it might have been hard to recover. Going back to Shaw Murphy again, watching him knock in a 145 and a 147 back-to-back early in the tournament was sublime. For some of the games other big hitters, there are perhaps more questions than answers at the moment, though. We're yet to see Neil Robertson at his best this season. Judd Trump hasn't really fired on all cylinders, even when winning the Masters. Other than the English Open, Mark Selby's struggles seem to continue. Ronnie O'Sullivan was hampered by tip problems at the Welsh Open, which was unfortunate, and I thought John Higgins actually played reasonably well, despite getting knocked out at the last 16. I watched his match against Tian Peng Fei, and he missed the chance to win the second frame to go 2-0 up, and it was a clear turning point. Well, yes, I mean, I saw someone say about Murphy's victory... Um, they said, oh, well, you know, the, the, the real big hitters weren't in the tournament. Well, they weren't in the tournament because they're not playing well. <laughs> they, they didn't qualify. So I'm not quite sure what difference that makes, really. Anyway, Vince Milner, he said, I thought I'd drop you a line as you seem to be running short. <laughs> Thank you. He said, just belatedly listening to the pre-Welsh Open podcast an hour after Robert Milkins won it. I found your podcast a few months back, and the first episode I listened to was the interview with Robert Milkins, which I loved for its honesty about the ups and downs of his career. So pleased he pulled this one off, particularly as I'm also from the Gloucester area. Great post-match interview regarding how much the money means to him. Thank you, Vince. We've had quite a few emails about Rob Milkins. 
uh, Ina, whose name I always pronounce incorrectly, just to say I'm so glad to see Rob Milkins win the Welsh Open. Always been a massive fan. He always played his own game over the years, even when that game wasn't going to win him tournaments easily. His humility and good nature are inspirational, but the nice guy with great talent wasn't winning. That's all changed now for the better. I think too much has been said to him in the last few days about winning the £150,000 bonus, Tour Championship, Champion Champs, etc. I'm more interested in hearing what he what he has changed to say he's now winning tournaments, and if what happened in Turkey last year was a catalyst for some big change in his life. Any knowledge about this? Well, I mean, I think it was, yeah. I think it was, because I think it was rock bottom, and he was sort of rock bottom in his career as well. He only won three matches all season. Um... I know that he got counselling after that, and, you know, that's all private, it's nothing to do with us, but, you know, something did change, obviously, in Gibraltar. Winning that tournament just gave him a lot of confidence, it took some financial pressure off, he was able to pay his bills, and, you know, just relax a little bit on that score, and this season he'd been very, very consistent, he's won a lot of matches, that that win didn't come out the blue in Wales, he'd been in the semis of the German Masters the week before, so it, it's sort of been coming in a way, and actually he'd played a lot of Championship League. He played five groups of Championship League. I think that really toughened him up, kept him match sharp, got him into the routine of just playing every week, which is what you want to do as a snooker player. Um, in terms of the bonus, and you haven't asked this question, but I've heard that you know there was sort of debate online, as we go back to that again, um, about oh well, you know, this, how, how dare Victor give one hundred fifty thousand pounds to one man? They should give it to the low ranked players. What absolute poppycock that is, by the way. Okay, bet Victor. Okay, can spend their money however they like. Now, clearly, this bonus, there were two incentives for having the bonus. One was publicity for Bet Victor, because their job, their only job, is to maximise their profits. And on that score, it worked, because it got huge publicity. It was a bigger story, Milkins winning that Welsh Open, because he also won the bonus. We were still talking about the bonus at the Players' Championship, even though it had been won. So they got huge publicity from it. The second is to incentivise players to play in their tournaments because some of the top players may have ducked out of a couple but because of the bonus, they didn't. Last year, Ronnie O'Sullivan went to Gibraltar because he was in the race potentially to win it. Uh, so that's it really. The idea that they would have got the same publicity just handing money to people who are not winning matches, I just find staggering that people can be so clueless as to suggest these things. It's not worth snooker's money, it's bet victors. They can spend it however they like. That's it. And it's not their job to provide the world number 100 with a living. For that matter, it's not Will Snooker's job to provide the world number 100 for a living. It's the world number 100's job, OK? <laughs> so the idea that, you know, oh, yeah, no, that money should be spread around. The no, it shouldn't. <laughs> they, they can do with it what they want. And clearly, this is the best way to maximise publicity. End of story. That's it. Uh, I, I'm constantly staggered by how people don't understand these things. This is, you know, top professional sport at the sharp end of the commercial world competing for space in the media and this was a way of getting publicity and it got huge publicity and for Robert Bilkins it's a huge amount of money Kelly Barker <laughs> as we continue she says congratulations Sean Murphy he's played as well as it's possible to play this week especially in the final he gives us he gives his all to our sport and a win has been around the corner for some time now this trophy is very well deserved I was in Wales the previous week where Murphy was also the man of the week up to the final. The 145 and 147 will live long in the memory. I was over the moon for Robert Milkins though. He meant the world to him and the financial bonus could literally set him up for the rest of his life. Times hadn't been easy for the milkman, so it was good to see him have his day. The final few events of the season could be really interesting now. No clear favourite for Sheffield in my opinion. 
and a lot of the so-called big names not in Hull. Murphy must be worth a flutter on both those events and probably favourite for Hull now. What a resurgence. I wonder what he'd been doing differently. Well, what it, yeah, thank you, Kelly. Well, what he's been doing differently, I think, from the start of the season, he's been feeling different because he, you know, took that rather drastic decision to have the weight loss. He's felt better about himself. It's like a reset. Interestingly, and this hasn't been mentioned, I don't think, but he turned 40. And that is kind of, certainly for men, it's always built up as a kind of big deal. Um, it's like, you know, life begins at 40 and all that. It's It's often the age where people maybe change course in their life a little bit and Sean I think got a few things straight off table and the injuries that he'd had seemed to be better now um, and just ready to go again and you know he's too good not to come good again you know I mean just a fantastic cueist got that great sort of presence in the arena and as I said earlier when we were talking about the, the online debate about him just love snooker and that's that enthusiasm has carried him through, I think, even through the dark times, it's carried him through. Um, and the punditry that he was doing at Wales didn't seem to make any difference, did it? You know, that didn't seem to affect his chances at all. Um, on the Milkman, Robert Milkins, we had another email here, Mark Williams, not that one. It's his first year, very well done to the Milkman, Rob Milkins. What a superb effort he's put in all week at the Welsh Open. He's played great, he's excellent to watch, makes a very good TV viewing. His fast-paced style and no-nonsense or dithering around the table adds a bit of pizzazz to the game, just what's needed to attract new followers. He has great shot selection and always seems to know when to play snooker, rather than, when to play a snooker rather than just crash on. A great temperament under pressure. He must have put quite an effort in to get his game back up and what a well-deserved win and back in the top 16. It was obvious it meant a lot to him and the cash injection will be a change for him and his family in the right direction. Goes to show that hard work pays off. I'm pleased for him as I'm sure Ali Carter will be too. <laughs> Let's hope he can keep this great performance up and a couple of wins he has now will propel him to more success. Well, just on that, Mark, I mean, yes, I think everyone was pleased for Robert Milkins. He sort of served his time in the game, you know. He's been a pro for 27 years, you know. A lot of that time, which 28 years now, I think, a lot of that time, you know, was sort of knocking on the door. I think he would admit when he was younger, he, you know, he, his attitude wasn't great at times. His temper wasn't great at times. But he matured definitely, and he's sort of become almost sort of one of the one of the sort of wise players now, the old, wise old players of the game. He's an uncomplicated character in some ways, you know. He's a very straightforward kind of guy. You you could imagine going down the pub, going down the bookies, you could have a chat with Rob Milkins. You know, he doesn't put on any airs or graces. He is who he is. Um, fantastic player. All, as all the things you've said there are true. Um, very fluent, very natural attacking but also has developed and this is maybe what he was lacking when he was younger has developed a great safety game and now he's won that tournament in Gibraltar of course you know he has a trophy and we've seen the confidence that he's taken forward built on winning the Welsh Open and, and back in the top 16 great, just great for him and uh, yeah I think everyone was happy for him you know just he sort of served his time in the sport I think anyway Mark continues what a flying week of snooker we've just witnessed in Wales flying Q-tips flying cue balls flying chocolate oranges and flying underdogs. What a great week it's been. It's been good to see the lesser-known players and underdogs doing well against the top players. Haven't they done well lately? It certainly can seem to be true that there is not much between the top 64 these days as there are some great potters and players about from various countries. The snooker shootout was a great way to highlight everyone also. Sean Murphy mostly played very well all week and a great couple of frames which included the 145 and 147. Nice to see him getting back in form again. 
With the exception of just a few, I do think a lot of top players are not at the top of their game just now or haven't been lately. Often when watching, when a player got in, I would think, well, the frame's over now, but not of late. It looks to be a few rusty players just missing that edge they usually have. Prime examples of Robertson, Trump, Selby and Higgins, to name but a few. It just shows that every part of the game must be sharp or anyone can have a chance these days. Ronnie's in middle ground at the moment, a few small tweaks to get just that bit sharper and he'll be on top form if he wants to be in running for the eighth. He's not far away, but some work is needed. My namesake, Mark Williams, is the same. He's not far far away. Ultimately, the champions will shine. Well, thank you, Mark. And at some point in the future, we'll talk about the World Championship. But I, I do think John Higgins actually did play well in Wales. Um, he didn't have the chance to, to carry that on at the Players' Championship because he wasn't in it. But I, I get the feeling that he, you know, maybe has turned a bit of a corner towards the end of the season. And, and I always feel in Sheffield, uh, the Crucible, that if you've won it before, you're at an advantage. Uh, because you've proven you can do it and, that, and we saw last season obviously you know all four players in the semis were former winners the class of 92 as Sullivan Higgins Williams and Judd Trump as well anyway Kerry Richards at the risk of stealing Alpha Bonzi's thunder and sending my third now the, the Kerry will come to Kerry's other emails later but uh, they've sent this one in just recently at the risk of stealing Alpha Bonzi's thunder and sending my third email between podcasts is BBC Wales the only regional broadcaster to show their home tournament where the English Open, Scottish Open and Northern Ireland Open are exclusively on Eurosport. If so, as a Welshman, that makes me strangely proud. Well, Kerry, this is a this is a hangover from essentially the 80s when they had the national championships. So they had the national championships uh, all around the world, but in the UK they had the English championship, the Scottish championship, the Northern Irish championship, the Welsh championship and so on and so on. And the Welsh championship was shown on BBC Wales. They had... Uh, a deal to show a week snooker and they showed just Welsh players and it was usually won by Terry Griffiths or Doug Mountjoy or, or, or I think the last one by Darren Morgan and then it was decided that they would have more to use that dreadful phrase bang for their buck if they actually had the top players in the game in the event not just Welsh people so that's how the Welsh Open started in 1992 that BBC Wales contract um took on the Welsh Open. Now, the Scottish Championship was shown on Scottish BBC Scotland as well. Um, and that became the Regal Masters, the Scottish Masters. Um, so that they still had a weak snooker, but it was, again, it was the top players. Because at the end of the day, you know, they're the people that the, the audiences, you know, the, the TV viewers mainly want to watch. So that's why. I mean, this, and it's always been kept. They've always shown the Welsh, um, whereas the other... Sort of region sort of drops drop their events, um, so I don't know whether the English was televised. Actually, you know, people may remember if it was or not. It may may have sort of received you know Anglia TV or something local TV coverage, but I'm not sure if that was ever televised. I don't know, um, but certainly the, the the Welsh was, and it, as I say, it became the Welsh Open. Joe Richards has been to the Welsh Open, so we're going to get feedback from Joe. He said, I booked the tickets ages ago for me and my granddad to go, but because he's getting on a bit now at 86, he wasn't keen to drive four hours with me from South Wales. First Welsh Open we've missed in 20 years, but he will enjoy it on TV just as much. I went with my partner and baby for a weekend away and managed to make the evening session of the snooker on Sunday. I gave the afternoon session a miss, as I didn't want to push my luck. Clandidno is such a great location. I was surprised, as I thought it might have been a bit run down, like some seaside towns, not that we've been to a lot. Couldn't have been more wrong. Busy, quite a buzz about the place. Couldn't help notice how clean the place was too, which helps with the picturesque location. 
Although I'm disappointed that the Welsh Open has left South Wales, I'd be disappointed if Clandidno doesn't remain a permanent fixture on the calendar. I've heard you mention previously how important the location of a snooker tournament is, and I couldn't agree more. Surely they should focus on having at least a few snooker tournaments in beautiful locations like this, rather than being a bit of an afterthought event in some towns and cities. I appreciate it's risky going somewhere off the beaten track, as it's risky could as it's risky and could be a flop, but without risk there's often no reward. I've been to Monte Carlo for the Tennis Masters, which is a stunning location, and I'd make some minor comparisons. Please don't laugh. It shows you don't have to go to New York or some extravagant city break to have a good time. It shows the UK has a lot to offer if you fall on the right place or do your research. I do think WST could have gone a bit further with the effort, though. A lot of tourists wouldn't know the snooker was on. Why didn't we have a big TV showing and advertising the snooker at the end of the pier or even gone further and had a big glass box with a snooker table in, promoting the sport and selling merchandise, having some competitions for children to win tickets. I appreciate these things are time and money, but they should get the local council on board and think outside the box and give it absolutely 11 out of 10. Although I think WST are doing a lot of great things, I think they should aim for 11 out of 10 and not 9 out of 10 with running the sport. Work 16 hours a day if you have to, to drive the sport forward, not 8 or 10 hours a day. I think that's the kind of passion effort they need. It's an absolute privilege running a sport. It's not a job, so I hope the staff really see it that way. WST do have some bargaining power. If the Mayor of Hunt Clan did know, he's really keen to have them there. WST should say OK, but on the condition you let us put WST and Welsh Open flags all the way up the coast and take over the end of the pier with an advert. Make the whole week in the town completely about snooker. There has to be more advertising effort in that sense. I appreciate it's not Clan Didno hosting the Super Bowl, but they aren't ever going to host something that big. The Welsh Open is arguably their Super Bowl, so make it feel that way. That's me coming from a positive standpoint, by the way. It was a fantastic weekend, but it's made me think how much potential one event could have. They could do the same in Belfast too for the Northern Ireland Open, similar to how to advertise the world around Sheffield. I still think they could do better in Sheffield too. If you walk 100 metres away from the Crucible, you wouldn't have a clue it's Sheffield's flagship sporting event. Almost make towns and cities want to fight over hosting a snooker event rather than it being the other way round. I think WST maybe need to get a bit more ambitious and work a bit harder. I may be wrong, though I've never run a sport. <laughs> I just think they should be absolute perfectionists. Well, thank you, Joe, for that impassioned plea. I agree with some of it, not all of it. I think, I mean, you make the point yourself when you're talking about putting up big screens and so on, and I said this last time, it does cost money and they'll have a marketing budget and they can only spend what's in that budget. And I would imagine it would not be cheap to, to do some of the things that you have suggested. Having said that, I was in Wolverhampton just last week and it has to be said there was very little promotion around the city to the extent where one of our team were, one of the, the, the pundits was in a local restaurant and someone came up to them and they were a big snooker fan and they said, oh, you know, so great to see you and going to get a picture and so on you know, what are you doing here? And they said, well, we're, we're, working at the <laughs> we're working at the tournament. And they said, well, what tournament? And now they're snooker fans, and they don't know there's a tournament in the home city. Now, you can't extrapolate one anecdote to, to sort of suggest that, you know, nobody knew it was there. But the fact is, it didn't seem particularly well advertised locally. Um, the crowds built up during the week. Uh, they were great at the weekend, actually. The final was fantastic. But... I think I, I do agree more could be done. I believe there's a new marketing team that have come in, which is actually quite exciting because it will be different, a different perspective on how to advertise uh, th these tournaments. One thing I would credit World Snooker Tour with, they do a lot of these days, a lot of good digital marketing. So a lot of sort of targeted stuff on Facebook and other places. 
Um, and that has made a difference in ticket sales. That has definitely helped sell tickets. Um, but in terms of on the ground uh, in these areas, it, it could be that more could be done. Um, it was pointed out again in Wolverhampton in the, in the hotel we were staying in for ITV. There was a What's On Guide sort of magazine, and there was no mention at all of the snooker being on in Wolverhampton, which is disappointing, I think. By the way, in the hotel, staying in the hotel, Saria McKellen, <laughs> Gandalf himself, he's on. He was doing a Mother Goose uh, in in the Wolverhampton city centre. And here's the link, uh, and, and Joe doesn't mention Ian McKellen, but uh, while, 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 while it occurs to me, the link with him and Snooker is that he appeared on the opening night at the Crucible Theatre in Sheffield. When it opened, he was in a, a show there as a young actor, um, and there's footage of him actually talking about the actual theatre, the layout of the Crucible Theatre is one of the best he'd, he'd ever seen. I suppose you have to say that, but anyway. Uh, him, I didn't see him myself, but he was spotted at breakfast. Um... Uh, we're not talking about Ian McCallum, we're talking about, oh yes, so Joe, Joe, uh, feels that, I mean, so, yes, all this work 16 hours a day, I don't think they should do that, no, I think they have a right to family time and leisure time like anybody else. Um, although at tournaments, the tournament staff actually do work very long hours, you know, you can be there 12, 13 hours a day. Um, but anyway, I'll be interested to see what the new marketing team do. I think there is definitely something in what you say in terms of making where you are more aware because the catchment area basically for the event is the, is the place that you're in right that's the mo- where you're most likely to get an audience so maybe more could be done we were talking actually yesterday just backstage about you know why why is there no effort made to go to the local snooker clubs 20% discount because you'd like to they'd like to come one handed if you give them tickets at a cheaper rate these things they seem obvious they may have been tried you know we don't know exactly but I, I share your general sense that there could be a little bit more done on the ground in these places rather than expecting them to come to you. You know, this sort of, it ain't field of dreams. If we build it, they will come. Well, actually, they might not. <laughs> they might not come because they might not know it's there. Um, you've got to tell them these days there's so many other competing attractions. Uh, anyway, thank you, Joe. Adrian Macy says, thanks for the podcast. I'm a relatively new listener, but I look forward to my weekly catch-up on the Green Bays. Having watched the first couple of rounds of the Welsh Open, I picked up on the troubles of Ronnie O'Sullivan and his tip issues. Why do professional players only have one cue? In, cr- in cricket, players, especially batsmen, take multiple bats to matches with them in case of breakage, and these bats are ready to go. Surely this will be a simple way for the players to overcome these cue-based problems. Well, just on that, Adrian, I think that the reason is every cue feels differently. It's not just a question of picking one out of the rack and, and you know playing with it. Um, players practice, obviously, with a particular cue, get used to the the throw of the cue and the feel of the cue and all that. And, you know, a lot of players, historically, just had one cue their whole careers. It seems to be these days they, they drop and change a bit more. Luca Bussell at the Masters a few years ago walked out with two cues and it was the biggest um, indication that he was going to lose, <laughs> actually, because it said he was sort of in two minds about which one to use. Um, so it's not quite the same. I mean, these are bespoke, these cues. They're often made for the player. Um, John Paris, our, our dear friend, uh, you know, at the end of every final seems to have the winner of the, of the tournament. Um, so it, it's not, it's not the same as just sort of take, you know, taking a load of tennis rackets, I don't think. Um, so that's, that's the reason really. Adrian goes on, I'd also like to know your thoughts on an ultimate Q Sports, uh, event. Have top players from Snooker, Nine Ball, Ultimate Pool, Karen Billies, etc. play a multidisciplinary format to see who's the best Q Sports player. I like all disciplines of Q Sports and would be interested to know who is the best player. Well, they have had a few of these, Adrian, in the past. Steve Davis won one about 30 years ago. 
I think in India. And the Lindrum Masters they had in Australia. Quinton Han won that. Um, that was, I think that was snooker. I think it was snooker, eight ball and nine ball pool and Karen billiards. I don't think English billiards was in there. But yeah, it would be interesting. There's a lot of cute different cue sports. And they all have sort of different skills involved. Obviously, Karen billiards, there's no pockets. So it's not a game of potting. Um, we've already seen snooker players go over to pool thinking it's kind of going to be easy and it isn't because the, the, the skills are different the break shot is so important there um, eight ball pool has, has particular sort of tactics um, it's not just about potting actually and snooker of course it, it, multifaceted skills required billiards uh, English billiards again you know has very specific kind of skill sets involved so yeah but it would be interesting I don't know I mean uh, who would if you put everyone in the in the snooker tour on there who would fare the best whether a snooker player would win it we don't know um, yeah I, 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 it, it's hard to say actually um, I, actually I will say though <laughs> now you put me on the spot someone like Mark Williams actually I think who's quite a smart sort of canny operator in general I think if he practised all of those different disciplines I could see him be, being pretty good at all of them but anyway uh, we'll see down the line whether that happens or not Monica writes, I hope you're keeping well. Thanks for the great commentary as per usual. Your voice is one of my favourites. Thank you, Monica. We'll see, we'll see whether you think that after the second episode this week. <laughs> anyway, just wanted to share a few thoughts. As an avid Ronnie O'Sullivan fan, Ali Carter is not my favourite person. But I do, I must admit, I do enjoy all his matches. His intensity, his intensity is unrivaled and it's quite thrilling to watch him never give up. I was impressed by his win in Berlin and also recently over Trump at the Players. Great late night entertainment. Seeing Robert Milkins win the Welsh was a highlight of the season. He's actually such an exciting player, he doesn't do a lot of thinking and it makes him quite fearless. It felt like the whole snooker world was behind him too, and that was one of the great moments this year. Good for him to win the bonus also, it feels like he deserves it in the light of the turnaround he's produced in his life. Finally, Ronnie's comments on Daniel Wells. Ronnie is not one to think before he speaks really, and I feel on a different day he could say something totally different. However, I don't actually think what he said was all that bad. If you break it down, he was alluding to the fact that Wells plays better with less pressure, hence the part-time line, so that his life is not depending on it. In addition, I think since the comments, more people have heard of Wells than ever with all the articles he's appeared in. Finally, Ronnie is a pundit and the best snooker player we have should be able to say what he feels, that's the whole point. That's why Eurosport hire him and, that, and what's the point of people always sitting on the fence? He creates controversy, excitement and headlines. He's TV gold. Anyway, thanks for the podcast as always. I missed you last week, but enjoyed the Milkins refresh nonetheless. Thank you, Monica. Well, I agree on the point about if Ronnie's going to be in the studio as a pundit, he should say what he thinks. And he does, and that is good, I think. Absolutely. You don't always have to agree with it, but that's what you want. You don't want sitting on the fence and on the one hand this, on the other hand that. What's the point in that? In terms of what he said about Daniel Wells, though, there is a... I mean, look, it came across as very harsh, and Daniel, you know, made the point, I think, I think it was a good one, that... When a young, a young player or, or a, a player sort of down the rankings hears that from the biggest name in the sport, there are actually issues around the effect it could have on them. Um, quite a demoralising effect potentially. But actually the, the flaw in what Ronnie said was that he said that Daniel Wells effectively should stay part-time, play in some pro events, but stay as an amateur. But here's the point, okay, that's not an option, right? Because the only reason he was playing in the Welsh Open was because a bunch of Chinese players had been suspended and so there was a place opened up. He can't rely on <laughs> on that next season. When they introduced the World Snooker Tour and WPSA introduced the 20,000 expenses guarantee, uh, so every player would be guaranteed to earn that much, 
suddenly everyone entered every tournament. So there weren't any places. So Daniel Wells, a few tournaments ago, actually couldn't play in these tournaments because there weren't places available. They've opened up because of the suspensions, but that next season, you know, those gaps will presumably be plugged. So he doesn't just have the choice just to rock up and play in the Welsh Open. There has to be a place available. And the only way to guarantee a place is to be on the tour. Um, and we'll see, won't we? We'll see whether he whether he does become a tournament winner or not. Obviously, he's, you know, he's in his 30s now. He hasn't won a tournament yet. He's been in a couple of semi-finals. I think he's a much better player than the sort of the, the way he was being spoken about suggested. And let's be honest, he beat Judd Trump in that tournament. So, you know, that, that's that's not nothing. But, yeah, it, 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 you're right in what you say that Ronnie kind of, he wouldn't have put that much thought into what he said. There were some truths in there, as there always are. It also came across as a little harsh. But the basic flaw in what he said was that Daniel actually can't just choose to, to play professional events as an amateur. There have to be places available, and there aren't always. James Beard said, I was worried when I heard you say during the last podcast it was on life support. Did I say that? Anyway, uh, I, I say a lot of things, James, that you know, you're know probably best ignoring, including the last half an hour. But anyway, he said, I therefore thought I'd better send a question or two. Having just finished watching the Fire of the Players Championship, I was wondering if you've managed to find out what a jewel bit is. <laughs> also, why is there no apostrophe in the official title of the tournament? Please keep up the good work. It really would be a shame for the podcast to end, and I, for one, would miss it. Well, thank you, James. I'm not, I'm not planning to go anywhere. Uh, jewel bits, yeah, they, they, they're some sort of online crypto casino. Now, you tell me what that is. I don't really know, but... Um, I suppose their money's as good as anyone's, uh, assuming it's real. I'm sure it is, by the way, I just, just to clarify. Uh, I, yes, I, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of these companies, you know, crypto sort of companies cropping up now. I'm not an expert in it. Um, but if they want to sponsor the snooker and they, they want to give the sport money, then, you know, I, I, I guess, I guess we, you know, we're entitled to take it. In terms of why no apostrophe, well, I enjoy this niche pedantry. I mean, what what what, what else is there really? But um, the, the apostrophe would come after the S, I guess, wouldn't it? Because there's more than one player in the tournament. So strictly speaking, it should be players apostrophe championship. I suspect it just it would just kind of look a bit cumbersome on on branding. Really, people would look at it and think, "Is that a smudge on it? Is that what what's that?" Um, so I, I think we can let them off that. To be honest, it's probably just an aesthetic thing. Um, but anyway, uh, as I say, I don't, I don't mind, uh, I don't mind people, <laughs> I don't mind people complaining about things like that because you know, pedantry is what make, what is what sort of makes the world go round. Certainly on a podcast. Stephen Forbes writes. He said, "I've not been in touch for a while. For such is the quality of correspondence you receive. I find it triggers my imposter syndrome. However, occasionally I find the courage from somewhere and have the audacity to, to email." Well, I don't think uh, you need to feel the imposter, Stephen. We're all friends here, in the main. Anyway, he says, I'd welcome your views on the Sean Murphy interview on ITV following his 6-3 win over Mark Selby in the Players' Championship, where he suggested players don't suffer from a lack of concentration in reference to missing easy shots. He did accept when challenged by Ken Doherty that players may experience other contributing factors such as nerves, but Sean was adamant it's lazy to suggest a lack of concentration. I read the comment thread from the related ITV tweet with interest. The interview and subsequent debate have proven to be somewhat divisive, much like pretty much anything else on social media, with views ranging from Sean having an unnecessary air of arrogance and superiority to being not unreasonable in his forthright views. Whilst I've listened to your commentary over the years for what must now quaint to days, perhaps weeks of accumulated time, 
kind of apologise for that. Uh, I can't recall how often, indeed, if at all, you cite a lack of concentration for a player missing an easy shot, playing a poor safety, poor position in the cubal, etc. I welcome your thoughts on the so-called fiery interview with Jill Douglas, Ken and Neil Folds. For what it's worth, Sean was one of the first players I saw play live many years ago at the Crucible. I greatly admire him as a player and ambassador of the sport, and more recently as an articulate and insightful commentator. However, I found his views somewhat black and white and generalised, and I can't align with him on this at all. Until I find the daringness to email again, I look forward to hearing your views on this. Well, thank you, Stephen. I mean, we mentioned this earlier, and Sean, he did sort of back down for the way he said what he said. Whether he, I don't think he necessarily took back what he said. He made an interesting point, I think. He said that the only reason for missing any shot is technique. But, of course, your technique is affected by external factors, such as nerves. <laughs> you know, if you're nervous, that could cause you to... You know, your alignment to go or, or, or for you to sort of snatch at the, at the ball. Um, and I think it's indisputable that players have missed because they haven't been concentrating 100% on a shot. Usually an easy shot because they're thinking about position or a couple of shots a time or I've got a, you know, cannon that red out or I've got a play for the, you know, for the right angle on, on this yellow or whatever it is. They're thinking about something else. I think that's indisputable that that's happened. And, um, and this happens in ordinary life. Things that we do sort of naturally, um, we're often daydreaming about something else. So more than once I've filled up the kettle and not actually turned it on. <laughs> you know, I thought, I thought I've turned it on and I've gone to, you know, pour, pour the water into the, to the mug and it's actually not boiled because I've just been thinking about something else because it's such a mundane, easy thing to do. Um, when I was, when I was, uh, young, my my dad was a teacher, and he would, every morning would set off to work, same route every morning, back out the drive, and he'd go down our, our road, and he'd be off towards where he worked at the school. And one day, he was driving along on our street, and there was a digger in the road, and he just drove straight into it. Thankfully, he was not badly injured, but because he'd always just driven the same route without any thought, really, he wasn't concentrating, and he just drove right into it. Um, and that can happen if you're doing something that you are attuned to just doing sort of naturally. That's why so often the players will get the difficult shots because they have to concentrate on them. Um, so I think there is an argument to be made that concentration is an issue at times for players. I think what Sean actually was really talking about was the word careless, which is overused in commentary. That is quite a lazy phrase. It, it's used to sort of cover a multitude of sins. Um, only the player will really know. I think that's fair to say. And Sean, obviously, you know, is is well, he's one of the best players we've ever seen. But I think there's a multitude of reasons why players miss. And I think concentration is one of them, actually. Um, anyway, Matt Tempest. <coughs> he says, I'm, now we were talking here last, the other time about uh, Ebden, Ali Carter, some people taken against them for their sort of political views. And he says, I'm glad someone brought up the subject of players' politics. And while I agree 100% with you, we go to sport to switch off from all that shenanigans. I'd be the first to admit that I can't warm to watching Carter, knowing his Brexit and Farage views, despite him being a player of real calibre and grit and resolution. Perhaps he could think about that rapturous reception he got from the couple of thousand German snooker fans at the Temperdrome, 99.9% .9 of whom would think him an absolute idiot if he started with his take-back control politics. Well, just on that, Matt, we don't know that for sure, do we, what, 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 what they would think, but anyway, you've made your point. He says, as for Ebden, I'm glad someone has finally broken the code of omerta on his offensive and moronic conspiracy theories. He's welcome to them, and he certainly spreads them far and wide. 
but it was getting ridiculous that no one ever mentioned them while constantly referencing his coaching of Lazowski. And talking of which, on a more serious note, am I in the minority of one in thinking Ebden as a coach is the last thing Lazowski needs? Well, you're clearly not, uh, Matt, because Dave Tindall wrote earlier on, on this very subject. Uh, Matt continues, Lazowski constantly seems tense, nervous and anxious around the table. Seems really modest and charming off it. Despite his lightning-fast attacking play and this huge burden now hanging over him. Call me an armchair psychologist, but the last thing he needs is a psycho-psyched-up Stuart Pearce-style come-on monster in his corner. What a sentence that is. Uh, he needs someone who can make him relax, chill, laugh and play as if it doesn't matter, to paraphrase, paraphrase Clive Everton. Frankly, all Lazowski needs to win a tournament uh, is to slow down a bit on the safety shots and take them seriously. He tends to just get down and play the first safety shot that comes into his mind. A few more seconds on shot selection at key moments. Concentration. A vice he shares with Sean Murphy. Now there's a there's a twist because this was written before all that that uh, controversy <laughs> last week. But uh, Matt has uh, has come in with, an, with quite a profound point unknowingly there. A uh, few more seconds on shot selection at key moments. Concentration. A vice he shares with Sean Murphy. Plus being able to laugh at this best player to never not win a ranking event is all he needs for that breakthrough. I feel. And finally, since half the show seems to be about inventing new tournaments. Little fantasy I've always had is to be a multi-millionaire, billionaire snooker fan, a la Damien Hurst or Ronnie Wood, and set up my own private invite head-to-head one-off th- best of 33 frame match at my stately home of the two players I've been impressed or excited by the most that season. Million pounds to the winner, 100,000 to the loser. Televised or streamed, sure, with a couple of rows of seats for spectators, but with a dark, smoky atmosphere, more akin to an old working men's club, or the early 1970s World Championship, in fact. I'm sure most of the players could be tempted by that. My personal first to 17 frames pick of this 2020-23 season so far would naturally be a Mark Allen v Jack Lazowski showdown. The joy of these long matches, a little like five-day test cricket, is that there's plenty of time for the one who gets off to the worst start to reel it back in without panicking. Very little chance of a one-sided whitewash. P.S. I agree with you, read the Cliff Thorburn book. What I can't understand is... If you learn your craft in those sort of spit and sawdust money game, rough as badger's ass Canadian joints that are mostly pool rather than snooker, how do you end up playing the slowest, most grinding snooker ever seen on the Green Bays? You would think the players that would thrive in Canada in the 1960s and 1970s are the trick shot, quick fl- player, Flash Harris, your Alex Higgins, or if there's a time machine, a Jack Lazowski indeed, not your Cliff Thorburns. Well, uh, that's, that's a separate issue, but yes, on the, well, if you ever become a billionaire, uh, Matt, do let me know. <laughs> you know, uh, you may become a good friend of mine on that basis. But anyway, thank you for, uh, thank you for your views there. And, um, yeah, listen, I think the point about Jack Lazowski, until he wins a tournament, everyone's, the world and his wife will have an opinion on what he should do, what he shouldn't do. My view is that he's done really well already. He's a top player, top 16 player. Just needs a trophy, I guess, to go with it, and that sort of completes it. And, and you know, we'll see. We'll see whether it comes or not. Uh, maybe the Championship League is in the winners' group this week. Uh, but that, we'll leave it there for now. As I say, we're halfway through. What, what truly is a bumper edition. So we're going to be back on Thursday. I keep saying we. I mean me. I'll be back on Thursday uh, this week. So do check the, the usual feeds, the usual offices, uh, and there's still time uh, to send uh, your views. Of course, and anything snookersinpodcast at mail.com. That's snookersinpodcast at mail.com. We'll have more on Thursday. Um, we're proud members of the Sports Social Network and all of that. But for now, thanks for listening. And as we always say, until Thursday, goodbye bye. Sports Social Podcast Network. <laughs>